year, and uh, then my mind got changed, I was going to just continue with Ephesians and look at the study we've been doing and especially how some of it and most of it or much of it um, in chapter 2 especially deals with the reality we find in Ezekiel 37. And we'll get back to that as far as the reality of the resurrection and being the body that is filled with Christ and all of the things that we find there. But from time to time, I think God wants us, wants me, I know, to be reminded to be faced again with the pure, simple gospel. And... I do my best at times to try to complicate it. I think we all do. And, you know, I get caught up in searching things and looking for theological proof, and, and none of that's wrong. And I, I go and dig in areas that have puzzled me, things that I want clarified, and God is gracious and, and does clarify these things in the seeing of Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with searching those things out. They are, it's recommended, right? Search the scripture. Uh, study to show thyself approved. All of those things are things that we should do. However, we can't do those things at the expense of missing and overlooking the simplicity of the gospel. And I think we'll only understand the scripture as a whole if we understand it in the light of the simplicity and the purity of the gospel that is Christ himself and that is the person of life himself. So today I want us to focus on just a specific aspect of this and just the wonderful simplicity of it. And these are not things that we haven't heard. I'm, you know, I remember back in the day I used to try my best to blow people's minds. I wanted to make everybody impressed. I don't care anymore to impress anybody. And that's a relief for me. Um, what I want to do is affect people's perspective. And what I mean by that is turn their hearts to see Jesus. Direct them to the truth. Not try to teach it into them because that's an impossibility. I can't do that. But I can direct them to the place where reality is reality, and direct their heart to see the teacher and to go to class with the only teacher that there is. And that's what the gospel always does. So this was all kind of stemmed in my heart. As I said, you know, I would have just kept on in Ephesians, but I recently had a correspondence by email and was asked a question. And I was asked something that I want us to consider this morning together I gave an answer by email, and uh, some of that's added into what I'm going to talk about, but I just want to widen it a little bit. And I think maybe, maybe this is not something that is necessary for any of us here. Hopefully it'll help all of us here, but it may not be a question any of us here have. But the problem is Christianity has failed us in so many ways. The religion of Christianity, the doctrines taught by Christianity has failed us in so many ways because it has kept us so focused on us 
that we can rarely ever see the reality of the gospel without having us front and center. And that's the, that's the real problem. That's an issue. Um, so the question I was asked wasn't new. It's not new at all. It's a question I've been asked many times. And I guess I've been asked that because people look at me and hear what I teach and they're like, hmm, something's wrong. You know, <laughs> they don't measure up together. Well, that's true. They don't. Because I'm not the Jesus I preach. Neither do I think that's my calling to be the Jesus that I preach. The gospel I preach says that this is a salvation of him and not of me. That's not an excuse. That's the truth. See, that's the truth that most of us have trouble with. That's the truth that most of us struggle with. Because again, we're so focused here. We're looking at the weakness of the earthen vessel trying to see the perfection of the treasure. And it's not ever going to happen. Promise we're always dependent upon the mercy and kindness of God to continue to perpetuate and to protect us from ourselves, to save us. That's why we needed to be saved. That's a big word. <laughs> we needed salvation for a reason. And salvation doesn't just fix us. Salvation overrides us. It is not I, but Christ. That's salvation in a nutshell. That's salvation as it truly is. So some of the things that I'll say are going to sound wrong to many people who may be listening, maybe nobody here, but to some who will listen to this, I guess, it may sound wrong. And it will sound antithetical to what most people believe regarding Christianity and what is deemed the Christian life. The question is heartfelt that I was asked. I understand it proceeds from a desire to truly know reality as it is. There's no doubt in my mind that's true. So my purpose is this morning, what I feel is to help those who may have this type of question, that may be feeling this same type of sense of longing for evidence, for proof, for validation. There's only one place that's found. There's only one place the proof of Christian life is found. And it's not found in you or me looking at us as bodies functioning daily on the planet. That's not how it works. And I want us to understand that again. I, and I don't want to waste my time trying to give qualifications for what I'm not saying. Because, you know, you feel like you have to do that. Well, I'm not saying we have a license to sin. I'm not saying we can live any way we want. No, that's just, that's totally off the table. That's not my point at all. My point is to tell you where reality is reality. What determines real for us? What determines truth and something that is unalterable and unadulterated. Because if you look at us, I'll use me. If you look at me, you're going to see something that is ever-changing and is adulterable and is alterable. Because this vessel is always 
fluctuating, ebbs and flows, ups and downs. Man, there's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. But there's a reality that does not have ebbs and flows, that does not have ups and downs. And that's the reality that girds the soul and holds it in place and keeps it secure. And it is of him. It is him and not me. That's the joy of the soul. As Paul would say, that's the boasting of the heart that has received such a gift. Problem is most people can't boast in that because they feel something's wrong when they can't boast in themselves and that. They want a equality between the treasure and the vessel and that's never ever gonna happen. God gave a treasure to reside in the vessel so that it could be evident that the power, the excellency of the power is of him and not of us. And that's not a temporary arrangement until the vessel finally comes to a point where it's equal to the treasure or is enhanced by the treasure. The only enhancement is that my soul has been brought from death to life. From sin as a state to righteousness. I'm getting ahead. So the question that was posed to me, I'll ask the question. Or say the question that was asked to me. Are you really experiencing the truth that you teach? It's a big question. You could take that as a challenge, but I didn't. That's sincere. Because the, the next one was, I'm not. You say you are, because I'm not. But how do you say that? Why would you say that? You see, the question is why do you think you're not? And why do you think that there's that issue? And I'm going to read some of the verses where this was stemmed from, and, and you'll see hopefully what I'm, what I'm referring to. In Romans chapter 6, verse 20 through 22 and then we'll go into Romans 5 for a moment because this had to do with some things that I taught in Romans when we were doing those lessons. And Romans chapter 6 verse 20 says, For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. See, that's a definite. When you were servants of sin, slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you in these things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, you have become servants of God. And it goes on, I didn't uh, copy that, but it says, having now been free from sin, you are slaves of righteousness. The exact opposite of the previous condition. And that was part of the question. Because I've taught that the state of man's soul, as it says in Romans chapter 5, is always and has always been determined by the man that rules or exercises sovereignty and headship over that soul. That's the one that determines the state of that soul. Man has never determined his own state by efforts, works, or anything else. 
We were born dead in sin. We were born sinners because we were born of the seed of original sin. A corrupt seed. But that was our state. We didn't do a thing to be sinners except be born. What do we do to be righteous? We're born of the seed of the righteous one. We're born of the seed and provided a life that is righteousness in perfect, absolute evidence before God. The proof of righteousness is God-given. It is provided by God, not provided by us. We think that the proof is always from the earth up to heaven, so it can be from the earth and God sees it. No, it's God provides it. Every good gift comes from above, from the Father. That's where reality proceeds, out from. That which we have received is a heavenly gift. It is of divine origin, and it was perfect before we ever received it. It was absolute and complete before we ever became recipients of it. When we're in Adam, born of that seed, we are under the government of his headship. Then we get the opposite condition, and that's going to be an important term. The opposite condition as those who have been born of the seed of God. A transaction has occurred that has brought a totally different state. Again, hard for me to fathom when I'm looking here to see it. And see the evidence of it. But it is so. Because it is God wrought. It is provided and done of God. And so we have been born of the seed of God. Been born of an incorruptible seed. And we're now under the rules, sovereignty, headship. There's so many different metaphors that are used to paint the picture of the soul under the government of a man. Of a uh, ruled from within. By a power that is greater than us. And I promise you, I said this years ago, I guess when I was teaching one, there were two states of the soul of man. Not I but Adam, and not I but Christ. That's it. There's no other state for the soul. It's either not I but Adam, or not I but Christ. That's it. And what determines that? My lifestyle? My, my productive uh, efforts? Nope. The presence of the man determines that. What's the means of the change that has happened? What's the measure of the change that has taken place? <clears throat> Christ in me. That measures it. That is the means by which it is real and effectual. So the email that I received said, in the light of those two conditions in Romans chapter 5, where we've been changed from the one to the other, the question was, so shouldn't it, or it should be, the complete opposite now? Where in Adam we were sinners, in Adam we were disobedient because he was the disobedient one. In Christ we are made righteous because of the obedience of one man. We are brought from the death that was, that was the state in Adam to now life 
So the question has this. It should be the opposite now, right? For us. Is this just teachings or shouldn't it be different for us? Meaning for those who are translated into the kingdom of Christ, the son of God's love, shouldn't it be entirely opposite than it was under the power of Adam? <coughs> the power of sin and governments of his headship. And it occurred to me so many are right there. So many people are right there at that particular kind of like a crossroad or a fork in the road. Where one way you can go trying to fix what you see is wrong. Or you can go this way and try to see what is right. And try to comprehend a reality that doesn't need to be fixed. That is settled and secured in another man altogether, not in you. Because the question, shouldn't it be different? Shouldn't it be the opposite than it was before? The answer to that question is, it is completely opposite now. Everything is completely different. The change has completely happened. And you may say it this way, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are past. Behold, the new has come. That's different. That's the opposite. That's a change that has happened. And the only caveat to that is if he be in Christ. Not as if he measures up to a standard. And here's the thing. The standard is not God's, it's man's. That's what we look to. That's what we thrive to, to reach. That's the pursuit of the soul, to reach an earth-bound, earth-originated standard. When God has a standard that's much higher, and it's so high God is not ignorant enough to think you can ever measure up to it, so He provides it to you as a gift. I look at Christians, and I see every fault in the book. You know why? Because there's every fault in the book. It's there, and it's evident. But you know what is not evidence to the eyes and to the ears? The reality of Christ in that vessel. That's something you can't see by looking at the vessel. You have to see the treasure for yourself. And that way you can determine the state of all who are in Christ by the Christ that is in you. Not the Christ they're exhibiting. That's a false measure. What's the measure of your exhibition? What does that look like? Please tell me. Again, not an excuse. I want you to see where reality actually is. What's the thing that doesn't move and vacillate daily? You or Christ? The vessel or the treasure? I promise you it's the thing provided of God. That's the only real Everything's completely the opposite for those who are found in Christ. That is the most true statement I can ever say. Everything has changed. We read it many times, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is the reason most people want that to be a futuristic thing. Because there's no way possible this is true of us. 
because we're looking at ourselves, looking at the world's condition. No, that's not even possible when it says, Behold, I show a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We should all be changed. In a moment. The twinkling of an eye. The last trump, for the trumpet shall sound. That's the sounding of the voice of the Son of Man calling out to the dead. The gospel coming out of him, calling, come unto me. That's what you hear. There's the sound of a trumpet calling a soul to a true feast. The true feast of the Lord. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. What incorruptible and we shall be changed. There's a change. The change has come for those who have heard the voice and have come to him. And there's no secondary subsequent acts necessary. If you are in him, the change has happened. There is an opposite condition now. You can look at the vessel all you want. That's not going to determine the validity or the invalidity or the invalidness of the state. Sorry, that's where we look because that's where we can see. But that's not where God sees it. You understand, that's why we have to know even as we are known, because if we try to know in any other way, we're going to know according to natural sight and natural reason. Again, a false measure. There's a measure that is unseen by the natural eye. And that's where reality is. We've got to stop with all the false measurements because it keeps people locked into themselves. And that's a tormenting thing. When you're locked into yourself and you think God's locked into you too. <laughs> That's the dangerous part. You think God is looking for you to please him. How foolish do we think God is? There's one son that came up out of the waters of baptism and he said, this is my beloved. This is my pleasure. And he never deviates from that conclusion. What he's done is given you that conclusion as a gift, as a life that lives in you. Again, I'm not called to live the Christian life. I'm called to the life that lives in me. That's the calling of God. He's called me to such and invited me to such a thing. And, and when that change happens, corruption puts on incorruption. Mortal puts on immortal. And then the victory is brought to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. This is a victory wrought of God, not of me. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. This is about bringing souls from the death under Adam and the law, condemning that state to life and righteousness, found and determined and defined and measured in a perfect man, not in perfect men, because that's not even a thing and never will be. So when asked, are you experiencing what you're preaching, that can be taken in several different ways. And believe me, I, I took it in probably every way you could possibly take it. But for most, I think it means, are you actually living out in lifestyle the evidences that make manifest 
that such is happening to you, such is true of you, such a vital change has happened in you. Are you living it? I remember that was the thing, you know, back in when I was early in Christianity, that was the thing. Are you living it? Are you walking it? Is it in shoe leather? That's how we used to say it. Have you put your teachings into shoe leather? What do we do? We bring it down. As far down to the earth as we possibly can to try to define it in something that's familiar to us. What does that mean? Am I living it out in shoe leather? That means are you meeting my standard of what a Christian should be? What's God's standard? Christ. Live that. I'll wait. Again, it's not about us living the lifestyle. It's about the life living in us. Jesus didn't come to give us a perfect lifestyle, an ethical, moral lifestyle. He gave us a life. That supersedes lifestyle. The lifestyle may come in variations, and it comes in parts and pieces. I'm telling you, for some, the vessel takes a long time to fix and to change and to alter behavior and all that stuff. But guess what happened instantly, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye? The change happened. That happened instantly. That changed the state of your soul. It might not have changed the actions of your body right then, because that's where men look to define it. But God defined it and did it like that. And he brought something in you so secure that as you are living it out in the earth, as you want to say, as you are daily attempting to better at least to some degree the externals, there's something that holds you, keeps you, secures you in the reality. And even when you mess up, you have an advocate. You have one who stands there securing your place before God. Why? Because your place before God is him, not you. And he stands there eternally, sure, and fixed in the sight of God as his delight, as his pleasure. And he lives in you as such. God, that's good news. I wish I could say it the way it's in me to, God, I wish I had the words to express such a good thing, but man, it just, it's beyond us. Jesus came to give us and be unto us life. In Galatians, he says that in that life, righteousness, and every other spiritual thing abides. Whatever you may consider acceptable in lifestyle, I guarantee you, life, life overrides it. Life is greater. The life of Christ is greater than any lifestyle you try to present to God and say, see, I've arrived. And we always look to the good parts and say, hey, I've arrived. Here's the thing that I found, though. Whatever we consider acceptable is still confined to a realm of dust. 
is still confined to the flesh and blood of humanity. It's the weaknesses and the vacillations, the things that happen to us. That's what, that's what we see, and that's where, I, are you affected by it? There's the qualifier, right? Are you affected by that bad thing that happened to you? Then you're not godly enough. You've got to work on it. Listen, don't tell me this. The effects will come. And if you could point to this person and say, oh, you were affected by this thing. Hey, wait. You'll be affected soon. Because something's going to hit you hard that you weren't expecting. And I promise you, when it does, your salvation didn't go up or down. Because it's untouchable. It's inalterable. That's good. That's the good gift that come from above. It can't be changed. So, the proof of the Christian life is what we look at. It's perfection, measure as a gift that God himself provides at the beginning. At the beginning, we receive everything up front. In its full measure, in a moment, in an instant, the woman healed with the issue of blood. What did it say? Immediately it happened. Immediately her issue was dried up. That's salvation. She came from an unclean person to completely whole immediately. And all she knew was, hmm, something's different. Nobody around her knew. To them, she was still that, you know, left unclean woman with an issue of blood. But she touched Jesus. That's what happened. That's all that mattered. The soul inhabited by the abundance of life, of grace, is called to grow up into the knowledge of a perfect man. A perfection the measured by the measure of the stature of Christ himself. So when saying, are you experiencing this? If you're asking, am I now living free from the deeds of flesh and sin? No. And guess what? I'm honest enough to tell you that. And guess what you can be when you know the truth? You can be honest. You don't have to depend on the hypocrisy of your fig leaves. Try to cover it up. I'm flesh and blood. And guess what I will always be? Flesh and blood. But guess who he will always be? My life. And when I screw up, I can fall on that sufficiency. And I can measure my life before God by the full measure of a perfect man, not in this one. Not in this man that vacillates daily, changes from time to time, and never can keep it correctly right between the lines. I couldn't even color within the lines when I was a kid. That's not the way it works. Grace is needed because we needed it. We, we, we seem to not understand why God had to save us, why God had to show his mercy to us and kindness toward us. Perfection of the earthen vessel is not the issue of salvation. Boy, that sounds unreasonable, doesn't it? 
Again, like I said, a lot of this is going to sound antithetical to the Christian life that we've been taught about. I'm telling you, the Christian life is Christ living in you, not you living like him. Not an excuse, just the truth. See, that's always the issue, the intent, the pursuit of religion. And that's because the body's performance, the control of action, is the sphere in which man can look. And he can measure their efforts and thus measure the validity of their productivity and their progress. But my point is not to give us this freedom to commit sin, but to show that there must be and is an anchoring power that abides and that brings in us reality that overrides all that we are at any given moment. So, what makes real, real? Let's consider Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For not into the holy places made with hands did Christ enter, figures of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to, listen to this word, this is Young's literal, now to be manifested in the presence of God for us. You know what this is saying? This saying, this is it. This is not a drill. This is not another type. What we've come to is not another testimony of something yet to be. What we have is the one who has passed into heaven itself and stands there as the end of the matter, as the conclusion of it all. And he stands there manifesting himself in the sight of God for us. Why? Because if it was us doing it, it wouldn't be sufficient. I don't even think we could get that close. Right? That's why only one man could go into the Holy of Holies. Can't get that close. Somebody has to take you there. No man comes to the Father but by me. This is a picture of that. See, we think we're all gathered in there in the throne room together and he's looking at all of us and patting us on the head. No, he caught one stands there for us. One stands there manifesting himself. We're all about manifesting Jesus and manifesting this and manifesting. There's the manifestation that matters. Christ manifesting himself to the Father. There's where the eyes of eternity sees. There's where the truth remains and abides, unadulterated, pure. He stands there. This is what's real. This is what's substantial. This is, a fi- this is sufficient. And this type of grace ever abounds in and unto the soul. Here's the ground of our boasting and nothing else. All things for us are determined and effectual by the presence of Christ, never the vessel in which he dwells. When we are the validating proof, when we are the evidence or look for it in ourselves, we fall victim to the superficial, to the familiar. 
and will keep us on that hamster wheel rolling along and asking questions like, am I truly living it? That distracts your attention from the one who is life himself. The gospel shouldn't have you focused on you saying, am I good enough? It should say, he is all in all. And in your weakness, you can still boast in his sufficiency. Because none of this hinges upon your power, your ability. God has given us his power, his ability. <laughs> That's the good news. That is the grace of God offered and given and provided. So when, 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 when a comment like it should be the opposite now, where are you seeking for the opposite? Where are you looking for the opposite to be found? Where is the validity of opposite? God's proof is the man that is standing before him in heaven itself. And that same proof is in us as the life and it is done and given and provided of God so that our boast can be in the real thing and not in the unrealized projections of religion. What we do is we live daily. It's no more than right now we're at New Year's Eve and tomorrow there will be people trying to live their New Year's resolution starting tomorrow. And we've done the same thing in religion. And that is nothing more than another resolution to live it this year. I didn't quite make it last year. I, basically, I screwed up before the second week in January. But this year is going to be different. When Christ came in, it was. And my urging to the body of Christ is set your heart to see him. Stop being distracted by you and others and how, it's, how you're working it, how you're doing it. And just see him because he's the full measure of it all. He's the working of it. You can't do anything. You never could. But he's the substance of it all. Look unto him. Just set your heart right there. You'll never be disappointed when you look there. When you look to Jesus and not to you, there will never be a disappointment. You will never walk away ashamed because the sufficiency is in sight. Everything has been rendered to us by his cross. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the change. That's the opposite condition. That's life himself living. There's the, that's the means of the change. And there is the measure of the change. There is the reality of the opposite now abiding within us. It's not yet something to be determined, something yet to happen, or that is yet to be determined when there's finally some physical evidence to prove it. We're detectives always looking for evidence. Well, why don't you look for the evidence the only place it can be found? The face of Jesus, not mine, not yours. 
See, the, the external changes that we're all looking for and what religion's always after and what men is always measuring, has the measuring stick, those changes, they come with time. We don't like that. Those external changes that we think prove something, they're slow in coming. They happen. They change. And we're all on different clocks when it comes to that. But the internal change, the internal difference took place in a single moment. And that moment ushered into my soul something complete, perfect, and sure. Even when I still see the ebbs and the flows and the ups and the downs of this, there's a constant. There's a constant that doesn't change on me. I change all the time. People I look at and have confidence in change, fail, but he doesn't. I change not. The same yesterday, today, forever. And either that is the definition of salvation himself, or it's not. So my re recommendation is to turn to see him. And that means deviate your attention from yourself. Because reality is reality. And it keeps you even when you look at yourself and don't see proof of it. Or see what you may think is even the entire opposite of it. You're going to see all that stuff. But guess what? Jesus doesn't change. And God doesn't take him from you because you didn't meet a standard. The gift was a gift. And he gave it to you because he knew you couldn't meet the standard. He gave you the standard. And that standard doesn't move and it doesn't change and it abides and it keeps you and it secures you on a ground that doesn't shake and move and fracture. Paul says we have this treasure in these vessels. Vessels of dirt, jars of clay, some translations say. You know, even with terracotta pots and clay pots, you got to be real careful with them because, man, you can really fracture them easily. Yeah, you can. But that's not the nature of the treasure. That's the nature of the vessel. We twist it. We think the treasure's fragile and the vessel has some kind of a uh, calling to protect the treasure. Or the seed for Jesus? <laughs> we better hope it's the opposite. We better hope there's an anchoring power in the midst of our weakness. Because you're always weak. Let me show you some of the opposite. Then we'll stop. I say unto you, he that hears my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. Shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's the opposite. 
That's the opposite. That's the real thing. That's the opposite that's happened. You have passed from death unto life. We who have believed have passed from death to life. That's opposite. Question again, where are you looking to find the opposite? Where are you looking to find the evidence of the change? Paul writes the same thing in Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The same thing. He should not come into condemnation because he's passed from death to life. Paul says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? The law of the spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. Same thing. But where's the true and unchanging measure of that reality? Thank you, sir. Where's the validation, the proof? That's what we want, proof. That the opposite is actually true concerning us. Is it lifestyle? Is it external deeds, good or bad? Or is it life himself? Where's it, where's it proved? And to whom? Is it proven? That's a big question, right? To whom is it proven? To men or to God? Where do we want the proof to be seen? In the realm where men can see it and applaud us or where God can see it and man can't? Because where God sees the proof, it's already. No, nothing more necessary. He sees the proof because he gave it. He bestowed it. And that secures. Now the growth in the knowledge of that, he carries you on based upon that truth, that never changing reality. That's the rest in which we live. Because I'm going to tell you, any growth, any pursuit of God has to be upon the basis of rest. Or it will never happen. You'll be on the treadmill running the race, man. And not moving. Because you're still trying to focus on the things that's always dragging you down. You. The weight is still there. Where there's no weight is him. There's no weight there. The weight of glory is there, but the weight of sin and corruption and you, not. Paul is a man doing everything perfectly. Listen to these words. As a man under law, doing everything perfectly, blamelessly, according to the law of Moses, and yet in God's eyes and internally as a state of being, he was just as dead and just as in sin and full of corruption as the prostitute that they brought before Jesus and cast her down and said we caught her in the very act of adultery. Isn't that something? And wasn't that the point Jesus was making? You who are without sin, cast the first stone. They all left. Why? Because his point was this. Your, here's the thing. Uh, I wrote this better and I'm saying it right now. Let me, let me read it. There, I would say that there's a great distinction in the ethical practices of the woman and the Pharisee. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, because they were in the temple and she was prostituting herself. But according to Jesus, they were equal before God, sinners. And what does that prove? 
Does it prove that we can be like the prostitute and still be as righteous as the Pharisees? No, that's not the point. Point some people want to take, but that's where they want to go with it. The point is righteousness and sinlessness and perfection goes much deeper, much deeper, and is much more significant than the mere actions that you perform or your ethics and morality. Far deeper than that. It's death or life. And that's a state provided of God. That's a change brought about by God, not by your works, not by your ethics or morals. See, it depends on the realm in which we try to perceive these things. An eternal reality demands that we are enlightened by, re, by a viewpoint and perspective that originates in eternity. And that is governed by eternity, not by earth and earthly things like religion, works. So you have, we are a new creation. Old things are passed away. That's the opposite. That's true. And as long as we, as we see the opposite in ourselves and our thoughts and our deeds, we'll be lost in the maze of frustration. Searching. Our works and performance does not validate the presence or the experiencing or the manifestation of the opposite condition. Christ as our life does. And that's the whole point. When you see, and I was going to draw here, but I'm running out of time. Uh, the two, two conditions. Have Adam, okay, the body, and then where do we look to see the evidence? The evidence in man before he was born again was an internal evidence. That man could be the best man, the best of us all. Live the perfect lifestyle without all of the sins that we look at. And guess what? Still governed by Adam. Still dead in sin. None of that mattered as far as state of being. It mattered as far as outward external proof that we look for, but not before God. God's not fooled. He's not mocked in those ways. He's not foolish like we are. The man in Christ, the man who has Christ abiding in him, has come to life, has, has righteousness now as his state of being. Why? Because of anything he did? No. Jesus standing before God, before him in heaven itself, makes sure for us and certifies and secures for us this state, holy and without blame, before him in love. How else will that be said of you? How else can those words be uttered and have you joined to them? If it's not by the grace of that perfect work of God happening without you that is unrelated to you and your works and your performance. It's God's doing. And it is marvelous in our sight. Because God did it. And this is Colossians. And we'll stop here. Colossians 2.13. I'm kind of interrupting the flow of the words, but he's talking about him putting away the ordinances of the law that were against us. 
and I'm reading this, I think it's, it's from the Kenneth Weiss translation, which was directly opposed to us. He removed it out of the midst of the... Of, out of the midst with the result that it is no longer there, having nailed it to his cross, having stripped off and away from himself the principalities and authorities, he boldly made an example of them, leading them in a triumphant procession. And I love that because that's the picture of a, uh, an army that would go and invade a city and they'd come back with the spoils of their invasion and their victory and they would have a parade through their city when they're coming into it the, and they would have those spoils and carrying them with him, that's what he's saying. That's what Christ did. It's the picture of a true triumphant victory. And this is the victory we read about a while ago in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the victory. Swallowed up in victory, right? Death swallowed up in victory. This is the victory. And then he says, Stop therefore allowing anyone to be sitting in judgment over you and eating and drinking or in the matter of feast days or new moons or Sabbath day, which things are merely a shadow of the things <clears throat> that were about to come. But the body belongs to Christ. Let no one as a judge declare you unworthy of the reward. Taking delight in self-imposed humility and worship of angels. Scrutinizing minutely the things that he has seen. Being futilely puffed up by the mind of the flesh. Not holding fast to the head. Out from whom all the body, through the instrumentality of joints and ligaments being constantly supplied with nourishment, being constantly compacted together, increases with the increase that is wrought of God. In view of the fact you have died with Christ from the rudimentary things of the world, why is living in them? Are you still subjecting yourself to the ordinances such as do not begin to touch, do not begin to taste, do not begin to handle? Man, that's, that's what we do. It's where we get lost. The do nots. Which things are all destined for corruption in their consumption. Ordinances which are according to the precepts and teachings of men. Which things as a class have a reputation for wisdom in a self-made, self-imposed worship or an infected hypocritical humility. And an unsparing and severe treatment of the body. Ordinances which are, and this is what we call dying to self in Christianity. <laughs> we've just, we've just re, repurposed and recycled these things. Not a, and these things have no value as to a remedy against the indulgences of your flesh. You know what that means? It doesn't work. <laughs> it has no internal effect. It makes you feel good about your practices, but it do doesn't do one thing as far as internal, your state. That's changed already. And see, that's the thing. They were attempting to alter something by works and deeds that did not need it. He's just told them a victory they're partakers of. You are complete in him. Now he's warning them, people will try to take you back and show you your insufficiency and say, now, add this and it'll fix it. Do this and it'll help. As, as Peter writes, they promise you liberty. 
but they themselves are servants of their own corruption. That's what happens when we take the measures and devices and mechanisms invented by men, even if they put God's name on it and use God's word to invent it. That's the problem. And that's a bad thing. So they were trying to fix what was already perfect. Their state before God by works and deeds. Don't do this, do that, don't do this. I'm not saying we should not do certain things. I'm saying that doesn't determine your salvation. Because the moment you do that thing you're not supposed to do, guess what you're going to think? I'm done. And God's done with me. It's much deeper, much better, better than that. God doesn't hold you in that high of esteem. Is that good enough? That strong enough? He loves you, but guess what he doesn't do? Trust you to make the right decision. So he did it for you. He doesn't trust you to live the life. So he gave you the life to live in you. That may offend some. I'm, I'm not trying to. Just trying to make it as plain as I can where reality actually is. So in the light of all of that, Paul does one thing that we all should do as preachers of the gospel, as believers who want to help others who are in these situations. He says this, in view of the fact that you are risen with Christ, the things above, be constantly seeking. Where Christ is, on the right hand of God, seated. The things above, constantly be setting your mind upon. Not the things on the earth. Those are the zealous works and efforts that we try to do to fix ourselves and get ourselves in line for God. He's saying, set that aside. That means nothing. Set your heart to see Him. That which is greater than these earthly works, greater than you, greater than the vessel. Set your heart to see reality where it is, not in the things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And whenever the Christ is appearing, our life, then also you with him shall be manifested in glory. What does that mean? When he appears to a soul that is desiring to see him and not themselves, he will make evident to your soul <coughs> that the state that you have always been in since the moment Christ came to abide in you is where he is, is the glory of God. He has brought many sons unto glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what's made you complete. And if you set your heart above, stop looking at the things of the earth, your works, your efforts. Just set your heart to see him. Why? Because that's where reality is. That's where everything's true, even concerning you. And he speaks of a life that is hidden, but it's not hidden in order to keep it away from us. It's hidden because of its nature. It, its nature, its measure is imperceivable. Or as he says, the kingdom of God comes without ocular evidence. 
It's hidden from natural reason and natural sight. It's hidden with Christ, but that's the thing. Notice that. It's hidden with Christ, meaning for us to perceive this spiritual, unseen life and reality in which abides all fullness and all sufficiency and all completeness, we must see Christ to be that reality. Forever to know that reality. We can't see that reality apart from seeing Jesus. It's not bound to you. It's inseparably bound to Christ. So what is the need? Relax. Rest. God has given rest to your soul. Man gives you chaos and uh, uh, marching orders and a grocery list of things to do. He's given you rest. So rest and set your heart to see where you are in whom you live. Because that's when reality would dawn in your soul and become the cognizant realization of the soul. And the soul will be able to enjoy a life that is of him and not me. That's the good news. And that's the gospel. That's the pure, unadulterated gospel to me. And that's the gospel we must declare. That's what we must present. The full salvation of God. Because it's in that presentation that I think the spirit of truth can utilize that. To use that gospel. To open the eyes of a soul. Because then that soul will be directed to truth, to reality, even an unseen reality. That soul will be directed to seek to see him, not measure yourself, determine your progress. When I was in finance, and I'm sure every job has this, but Every, every couple of months or few months, they would come in and do a progress report. And what they determined is whether or not you got a raise, a bump in pay because you were really doing what they wanted. God doesn't do that. We receive the beginning and the end all at the same time. The only thing that is progressive or comes and changes is the understanding. But God's understanding, the thing that actually secures us, what God knows concerning the soul, happens in a moment and is eternal. So to all of us and all who are listening and will listen, the only thing I can say is set your heart to know Jesus. Stop letting men judge you. Stop judging your own self. Stop trying to be the perfection that Christ already is. Know that you are at all times dependent upon the fullness of Christ to be unto you what you can't be. And that's good news. So, amen. We'll stop there. Amen.